Good morning. All right, we began a series of sermons last week on the book of Judges. If you were here, you know it gets saucy, and it's going to get saucier as we go. And so I'm going to begin with the first judge this week, or the first one we're considering, which is Ehud, and then I'm going to be taking on Gideon, and then Jephthah, and then Art's going to come in and have to deal with the really, really nasty ones. So, um, so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read to you today from Judges chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, please feel free to open with me. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And Matt here, he's going to run you a Bible if you would like one. So you just need to make yourself known. Judges 3, verse 12. Now hear the word of God. This is for you today. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The the guy's knocking me off. The the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came in to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in also after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor." Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over, and they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we come now to consider your words. And you know that if you don't come and fill us with your spirit and enable us to listen, that all the words of my mouth, all the words of your scriptures will fall like seeds on hard ground and they will not find purchase. So according to your word and according to your promises, we ask you, open our hearts that we may hear. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Okay, so today we consider our first judge, Ehud, and I want to begin 600 years after the book of Judges, which puts us about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And the scene is God's people in exile. And you've got to imagine them all sitting conquered and and scattered on the banks of the Euphrates River. You've got to imagine them with their heads in their hands and great sobs shaking their whole bodies. And you've got to see in your mind the, the great... Babylonian poplars that line the river and the weeping willows and and inside those trees they have hung their lyres and their harps. Those same instruments that they used to use to go up to the temple and sing the glad songs of salvation to their God. And they have hung them up because they will not need them in their sorrow. And then further you have to see even sadder yet their captors tormenting them. And we have the account of it in Psalm 137, it says this, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. Now, Set that aside for a minute. Now, we know, as I said last week, that the Judges, the book of the Judges as we have it today, was written in its final form during during this period of the exile, okay? So the the oral stories go way back before that. But, But the final form that we have was written down while the people were in Babylon by the Euphrates weeping their guts out. That's when it was written. And I have to imagine that if one of those Israelites did obey the taunt and pull a harp off the tree and began to sing a song of Zion, he might have sung about the tragedy of the judges and how their exile was a direct result of their disobedience during that period. And as they told their story of the ancient deliverer, Ehud, I think it must have helped them explain their sorrow to one another, but not only to explain their sorrow to one another and to find some kind of understanding about it, because there's no small amount of comfort that comes from understanding where the sorrow comes from. The story of Yudha is not just about understanding where their sorrow comes from. I think at the same time, it showed them the rising sun of hope on the distant horizon that life would not always be this way. So that's what I want to do today. I want to tell you the story of Israel's deliverance through Ehud and then try to show you the hope that lies within it. Okay, so we see right off the bat 
the very beginning of the story that the Israelites have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And as I mentioned last week, this is the cycle that the, pe- the people get into during the book of Judges. They do what's evil. God hears their cries, sends a deliverer. He delivers them. There's rest in the land. That's the cycle. So we see at the beginning, the people have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord, which is surely some kind of idolatry, and it's gotten so bad that God strengthens the pagan king of Moab, Eglon, to come in and destroy them and to subdue them. Then we see after 18 years, the people of Israel have their cup of misery filled to the top. And in verse 15, it says that they cried out to the Lord. Now, if you're reading along, you notice it says nothing about repentance in there. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but it certainly doesn't say that they cried out in repentance. It only says that they were miserable and they cried out. And God sends a deliverer. And this tells me that that God is interested in showing his character to his people even in the worst of times. He says, I am the kind of God who accomplishes my redemptive purposes, not because my people are good, but because my people are mine. And so God sends them a deliverer. In his compassion, he hears them and he raises up Ehud. Okay, who is Ehud? Um, The first thing we learn about him is that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And one thing we know about Benjamin right now is that they are the smallest of all the tribes. In fact, because of a civil war that had gone on, um, Benjamin at this point only had about 600 people in it. Okay, so they were the weakest of all the tribes. It's not not a good start for the deliverer of God's people. Um, Then... Ironically, um, we see that uh, if you remember back uh, when Jacob names his sons, um, Benjamin, um, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Ironically, the very next thing we learn about Ehud is that he is left-handed. Okay? Um, And I, I, I... gather from the woots during the scripture reading that we have some lefties out there today. <laughs> is that, is that you? Was that, did, no? Okay. That was, did, okay, there you go. All right. <laughs> Praise God. We need you too. All right. Um, so it's this left-handedness on which the whole narrative turns. Now, the fact that Ehud was left-handed means almost nothing to us today because in our culture, being left-handed just means you have to be kind of careful about where you sit in a booth at a restaurant so you don't bump elbows with people, or it just means that you belong to like the more creative swatch of society. Um, we even had a president, last president, who was left-handed. Okay, so this, is, this doesn't mean much to us. It just kind of is, but not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, left-handedness was understood much differently. In Egyptian and Middle Eastern pagan mythologies, the gods used their right hand to bestow blessing and goodness and kindness. They used their left hand to bestow destruction and curse. Um, In ancient Greece, Plato and Aristotle thought it was the right hand that was associated with good and the left hand with criminality and evil. In fact, if you're married and you have a ring on your left hand, on your ring finger here, you can thank the Romans for that because in their mind, when you got married, there was a little, this little charm was to be put on the left hand to drive out the demons in the left hand. You got to take a little tidbit for you. That was free. All right. Um, so everywhere in the ancient world, left-handedness was associated with weakness and it was viewed with suspicion. So immediately in the story, we're confronted with conundrum. God raises up for his people 
a left-handed deliverer. And he would be a deliverer who is universally looked upon with scorn and suspicion precisely because he was, because of his affliction, incapable of doing what God called him to do, namely deliver his people from a powerful king. Like if he was, if God was to give his people like an interview process for a, a judge and a mighty warrior to lead them out and to conquer their captors, they would not choose this left-handed man. They say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you, because of your affliction, there's no way you could possibly rise up and be strong and courageous and defeat the enemy king. We'll call you, but they would never call. And so we, we see that God does not give them a choice. Um, so it delights him, we can see, uh, to raise up such a weak-looking deliverer because as it turns out, we've already read it, his apparent weakness is the very thing that enables him to deliver the people. So how is this left-handed deliverer used by God to save his people? Well, in the beginning, we see that he has been chosen to bring tribute to King Eglon. Now, a tribute in the ancient world was basically went like this. If you were a conquered people, um, one of the ways that the king who conquered you made his money off of you was to keep you in your land and keep you at your industry. Therefore, you would do your thing, and then you would take a certain amount of your agriculture or your produce, and you would bring it and cart it off to the king. That was what a tribute was. Now, um, before Ehud goes to offer this tribute, we see that he fashions a short, you know, cubit length, uh, two-edged sword, and he straps it to his right thigh. And he takes a gamble, because the proper way to draw a sword, and I know you all know this, but the proper way to draw a sword is across the body so that you're ready, you know, and on guard so you don't have to fumble with it. Um, so he hides the sword on his right leg, taking a gamble that the guards in the palace would not check his left leg. And it turns out he was right. He did not get checked for it. So Ehud goes to present himself his, and his tribute to the king. And when he arrives, he f- we find out an interesting detail about the king. He is very fat. I mean, it's emphatic. He is very fat. And here's where we begin to understand the misery of God's people. Their conqueror, we're led to assume, made himself fat on their grain while they themselves suffered privation and want. In addition, this is interesting, the word that the writer uses for fat is the same word that is used in the, in the temple context for the fatted calf of sacrifice. So I wonder what's going to happen to him. All right, so Ehud offers the tribute and goes away and he turns back at the borderlands where these great stone idols were set up. And he turns to the king and he says, you know, I have a secret message from you. Now remember, he just got back from their idols in this great holy place that they had. So it's conceivable that, that the, the king thought, oh, well, maybe while he was there, he received some divine revelation from the gods and he has something for me. It could be, who knows? But Ehud repeats himself. I have a message from God for you. And then Eglon sends out everyone except Ehud and brings Ehud into his private chambers, which happens to be the royal toilet. And here's where it gets gruesome. Eglon stands up to receive the secret message from God, 
which happens to be the two-edged cubit-length sword that is attached to Ehud's right thigh. He pulls it out, stabs him in the stomach. Uh, the <laughs> we're told that the fat came over the hilt of the stomach because he didn't pull it out. And then afterwards, the dung came out. Thank you. <laughs> it is funny. It's funny. It's supposed to be. Okay? Um, and now, uh, and so we see that the fatted calf has been slaughtered. Now, Ehud walks to the door of the secret chamber. Sometimes, or somehow he escapes out of the chamber. All sorts of speculation on how. And then he goes back to Israel to rally the troops against Moab. And he, um, and he rallies them in like the real moment of faith for which he is commended in Hebrews chapter 11. And he says, follow after me for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. Okay, now, the only reason he was able to escape and go rally the troops is because of the long delay with the guards. Do you remember that? And um, it took them a while to discover Eglon's death and, um, and actually go in. Now, let me just tell you and, and emphasize again, this is supposed to be funny. All the best commentators on this, very serious theological people with beards and hats and pipes, they, they all say, this is supposed to be funny. Okay, they emphasize it. You're allowed to laugh at the Bible. I mean, consider the circumstances. Okay, the men who are guarding the king's chambers, that is his toilet, are standing outside. And standing there, we can assume they began to smell something because a certain substance was just evacuated from a certain king's bowels. Yes? And, by the way, he has a cubit-length sword in his gut. We can assume there was some moaning and groaning going on. And they're embarrassed. They're, they're embarrassed. And I don't know how long they wait. It doesn't tell us. But long enough to get embarrassed. And so at some point, they're like, okay, something's going on. Somebody's got to go in. Well, I'm not going in. <laughs> you go in. No, I'm not going in. And after a bunch of that, somebody shot scissors and somebody shot paper. And it's like, all right, you, you're going in. So they go and they get the keys and they open them up and they find their king dead and slain on the floor. So Ehud goes back and he raises up the people. And then the weak left-handed deliverer saved them. And it tells us that the land had rest for 80 years. So what are we to make of this story? It, if indeed, in my little imagination here, my imaginary scene in the beginning, if indeed one of the people of Israel sitting by the banks of the Euphrates River sang the songs of the judges, what did the story of Ehud the left-handed deliverer do in them? What did it do? Well, I think it must have convinced them that the only way out of their bondage was for, the, for God to send them a deliverer. They must have a deliverer. And this is the hope that we find in the story. And indeed, as you know, a few hundred years later, God would send a deliverer, and this deliverer would be God's own son, Jesus Christ. And you know, 
I hope, I hope you can hear it, that Ehud prepares us for the coming of Christ because Christ himself was a left-handed savior. I don't remember reading that in the Bible. No, it's not in the Bible. He wasn't left, or maybe he was left-handed, but he was everything that left-handedness signified, namely weakness and scorn. When you think about Jesus, you think that he was the chosen deliverer of his people. Was there ever a deliverer less suited to the job than him? At least, at least as he was seen from the outside. And he had sketchy origins. Everyone knew that Mary was pregnant before they got married. He was, his family was poor. When when he began his itinerant ministry, uh, the, the, peop, the powers that be, like, they thought he was a blasphemer because he kept claiming to be God's son. And the Pharisees further sneered at him because he had this unfortunate habit of sharing a table with prostitutes and tax collectors. Now, I don't, I don't think that shocks us enough as it probably ought to. What if, what if our pastor... Matt Miller, every week was having dinner with prostitutes. And we know, there's no man in this church who has more integrity than him. And we know he would be, he, he has a heart for them. He wants to bring them into the king. He wants to, this, wants to preach Jesus to them. He wants them to reform their lives. He wants good things for them. But, but if, it, if word got round and like, this is his reputation in the community. When you invite one of your friends to church, you're like, yeah, this is my church. And Matt Miller, he's the pastor. And it's like, oh, that guy. Isn't he the one who has dinner with prostitutes all the time? Like, okay, do you, you feel that? That's, it's scandalous. This is, and this is our deliverer. Way worse than left-handedness. Okay, way worse. Even his own family, if you'll recall, thought he was crazy. And so they go out and they try to bring him home and shut him up, but they can't. At least Ehud had a warrior's sensibility and he could fashion his own weapons. Jesus was so weak, as it appeared to their eyes, that when he stood in front of his accusers at the end of his life, he made no defense, even though he had done nothing wrong. Jesus was so weak that he laid down willingly upon the Roman instrument of execution and willingly offered his hands and his feet to their spikes. And when people came and saw his mangled body, they taunted him, shouting, if you are our deliverer, come down off of that cross. And when he did not, he just proved how weak he actually was. And when he gave up his last breath, he died a shameful death, full of weakness, and proved that he was not the deliverer he claimed to be, at least in their estimation. A left-handed savior had saved God's people once, but not this time. I mean, if at least the Muslims have Muhammad, who conquered with the sword and was powerful in his military campaigns. That's something to take pride in. We have a savior 
who did not take up the sword, but was cut down by the sword. At least that's what it looked like. Hanging on the cross in apparent defeat. But three days later, life and power rushed into his body and he was raised from the dead and walked out of the tomb full of glory. And in his resurrection, Christ showed the world and anyone who would believe that the cross, that place of his greatest weakness, was actually the hidden sword which he thrust into the guts of sin and Satan and death, delivering his people not from some piddling enemy like the king of Moab or even Caesar, but from the greatest enemies of all. By his weakness, listen, listen, by his weakness... Christ delivered his people from their iniquities and offered once for all to anyone who believes the forgiveness of their sins. By his weakness, Christ broke the back of Satan, that ancient liar, that ruiner of the human race. And by his weakness, Christ destroyed death so that his people might live everlastingly. And for all who believe in the deliverance of this left-handed Savior, they have entered into his rest. Ehud delivered the people into 80 years of peace. But by the death of our left-handed Savior, he has offered up and invited us into his everlasting Sabbath, the year of Jubilee, the kingdom of God and of his saints. Do you believe this? Where else will you go? If you believe this, my dear brothers and sisters, then you, you must not be afraid to look weak in the eyes of the world. Our left-handed Savior has established for himself a left-handed people. Our left-handed Savior has established for himself a left-handed people. It ought not surprise us if the world looks upon us as weak for needing a Savior. It ought not to surprise us if we suffer scorn for following him. It ought not to surprise us to find that we are mocked and derided in the public square. If the world hates you, Jesus, it hates me, Jesus said, it will also hate you because it hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. The apostle Paul even, he suffered incredible physical affliction and gloried in his weakness. He said that it was on the stage of my weakness that Christ's power is put on display for the whole world to see. And this arrangement for Paul was the most magnificent thing imaginable because it was here that he was like his Lord. A left-handed people has established for himself a left-handed people. But there's one further point that I want to make. Let's go back to the banks of the Euphrates River and see God's people there. They're exiled, full of lamentation. And we know, as I said, that it was during this time that the stories of the judges were written in their final form. I want you to imagine a Jewish father he gathers his children around him. And those you look in the eyes of those children and they're sunken. Their bellies are swollen with hunger. 
All they've ever known is captivity in a land that is not their home. And I want you to see those children looking into their father's eyes and asking, will it always be like this? And I want you to see the father responding, saying, no, it will not always be like this. God will deliver us and we will return to our land. Let me tell you the story of Ehud, whom the Lord sent to deliver us in the days of the judges. And the father begins to tell of the left-handed man who went into the enemy's toilet and thrust the sword and the fat came over and the dung came out and the guards were embarrassed. And, and then he escaped and rallied the people and came and he fought against Eglon and delivered the people. And then after he tells that story, I want you to see those children with their eyes lit up in laughter. Because this story is meant to induce laughter. And there, even in the land of their captivity and despair, those children laugh. They laugh at the unlikely deliverance of God. Now, in my opinion, maybe one of the most magnificent sounds in all of the world is laughter in the midst of grief. I've only performed a couple of funerals in my life, but at all the funerals that I have officiated over, one thing that is my practice is to see the family a few days before the funeral and to try to, if I didn't know the person very well, to, to try to get them to help me know them better so I can speak more with, with more pathos about the person. And so I say, tell me some stories. And here are a bunch of people who are downcast and who have grief on their faces. And then they begin to tell the stories and they start laughing at these, at these little peculiarities about their loved one, about their father or their brother or their mother or their aunt or their uncle. <laughs> and eventually they all erupt into laughter. And I don't know of a better sound than that. They are in the midst of powerful grief and yet they laughed. And do you know what this tells me? This tells me that wherever laughter comes from, it runs much deeper and grief. Those roots go further down than affliction. It tells me that grief can never be the final state of God's people. And I know that I've said this before and I cannot help myself but say it again. Don't you know, you people today here who are in grief and sorrow and sickness and shame and difficulty don't you know that it is written that one day all your sorrow will pass away? And that in that day, only laughter will remain. Didn't Jesus say in Luke chapter 6, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
He didn't say you will have joy. He said you will laugh. And one day we will all be gathered around the table of God and we will tell our stories of how the weakness of our Savior became our strength and our salvation. And we will tell the stories of how our grief and despair almost broke us apart. And as the sorrow begins to drain away, only laughter will remain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, we come to the table now, and, and I want you to understand something about this. We have a Savior that for all the world looks like the weakest of men. He would not fight back. He, he allowed himself to be condemned willingly. And he died. Now we know that in the kingdom of God, Isaiah tells us, and Revelation tells us, that, that there will be a feast, a magnificent feast, full of well-aged wine and, and food full of marrow. It'll be marvelous. But when Jesus introduces this meal to us, he doesn't say, although it may be implicit, he doesn't say, and then think forward to the day when you all sit around the table in the kingdom. No, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. What that tells me is that he has found it needful for his people to week after week come and ingest the very symbols of his weakness. And by ingesting the symbols of his weakness, it is there that he makes us powerful, strong, moving on from one degree of glory to the next. Outwardly, it looks weak. You guys come up here, you eat bread, you drink a little cup, Nothing explodes, nothing, nothing happens except you commune with your Lord and you are made one with him and you remember what it means that you belong to him and you repent and you believe once again in the forgiveness of your sins. That's what this table is for. So I invite all who claim the name of Jesus to come and to enjoy the weakness of the Lord, which is the strength of the Lord. So let me pray, and then we will come. Father, I must admit, I don't know much of what to say. We long for the day when the skies will be torn open and our Lord will descend and he will bring us into his kingdom. We long for the day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, when he will lift up our heads and swallow up our grief. But Father, we know 
then unless you choose to send him at this moment, we must endure. And so now as we come to the table of our Lord, we pray that you would grant us that grace of endurance. In Jesus' name, amen. All who claim the name of Jesus are welcome to come and partake.